John chapter 20, beginning with verse 24. We read, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciple therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A few years ago, Rasmussen released a comprehensive report that found that nearly one in five American Christians, roughly 20%, not only questioned the resurrection of Jesus as a fact of history, but rejected the resurrection as being a central tenet of the Christian faith. Again, this was a poll of Christians. And let me say this from the beginning as clearly as I can. You can refuse to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have that prerogative. But you cannot do so and still consider yourself to be a Christian. Pastor John MacArthur, he agrees, writing, quote, The resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It is so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. To this point, since the very formation of Christianity, every single major Christian creed has affirmed the resurrection of Jesus as being an essential core belief. The original Apostles' Creed states that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead, and on the third day rose again. The Nicene Creed, codified in the First Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., stated that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and on the third day rose again. The Westminster Confession of Faith, established in 1646, articulated clearly, quote, The Lord Jesus was crucified and died and was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption, and on the third day he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. Even the updated Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which was ratified in 1992 by Pope John Paul II, stresses the irrevocable importance of the resurrected Jesus. They say that the resurrection of Jesus, it was, quote, the crowning truth of our faith in Christ. As theologian and Jesuit priest Gerald O'Collins once wrote, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It's not Christianity at all. In fact, the Bible agrees with this. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, he affirmed how vain and, and pointless our faith would be, our faith in Jesus, apart from the resurrection. He wrote to the church in Corinth, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also. Strong words by Paul. If we're being fair this morning, I will concede the idea that Jesus rose from the dead after spending three days in the tomb. That's a radical proposition. Predicting on three separate occasions that that's exactly what would happen to him 
is kind of borderline crazy. I mean, there is a reason that there are no other world religions, uh, world leaders, moral leaders who have ever dared stake their entire reputation on such a bold claim as, I'm going to die in three days, will be resurrected. And yet, I want you to know that the evidence for the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. Now, of all the biblical characters associated with this story, associated with this morning, Resurrection Day, I find Thomas to be the most relatable. You know, as you get to John chapter 20, verse 24, you need to understand a little bit of what's happened. We're kind of diving into the midst of a story. The first resurrection appearance of Jesus took place that morning in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus has a loving exchange with Mary Magdalene. As soon as she leaves to inform Peter and John that Jesus had risen, who in turn run to the tomb to see for themselves, Jesus appears next to a group of women who had been with Mary. They had separated. Jesus provides them news. He reveals himself to them. They rush back to some of the disciples to fill in the details. If you harmonize the accounts, Mary Magdalene catches up with these women. Together they bring the news to the disciples. Likely only nine. Judas is, you know, no longer in the picture. And Peter and John are not with them because they've run to the tomb. But in response to their report, the report of these women, in Mark chapter 16, verse 11, we're told that they did not believe them. They, they doubted, they questioned. In fact, Luke would add that the words of these women and their experiences that morning seemed to them to be like idle tales. Following his appearance to Mary and then this group of women, Jesus will appear to two disciples who have left Jerusalem traveling on the road to Emmaus. While we have no details of this other account, after this, Jesus will then go back to Jerusalem and have a private encounter with Peter. Even with these two disciples coming back from Emmaus, the ladies, you have John who's already a believer. He was convinced by the empty tomb. Peter has had an exchange with Jesus himself. In spite of all of that, think about it. Mark 16 verse 13 says that the nine remaining disciples, the nine guys kind of left out of all of this, still didn't believe. You had the women, that was one thing. You had these two disciples from Emmaus, that was another. You had Peter, you had John, and they still didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Look back at verse 19, because the stage is kind of set here. We read that the same day, so this is Sunday, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The way that John describes this particular scene indicates the gathering here is far from accidental. The, the word assembled here in the Greek, it's actually the same root by which we get synagogue or gathering place. seems that Peter and John, hearing that the nine are doubting the stories, call a formal official meeting, a powwow of sorts. Now we have no idea how long these men met together in this upper room. And yet John recalls, and I love the way that he, he, he describes it. He says that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And there's a very nonchalant 
kind of presentation to this. The, the word came, it's interesting because it literally means to come into nothing. It's, the idea is that Jesus didn't like walk through a wall or descend from a cloud. He just materialized in the room. Now, what must that have been like? You know, the disciples are having their meeting. Jesus materializes in the room. We get this phrase that he's standing in the midst, which means that he's not in front of them. He's in the middle of them. He's just hanging out. He just wanted, like, how long did it take them to kind of do a double take that Jesus was sitting, you know, right in the middle of them, right there with them? I would have been a little freaked out. Could you believe your own eyes? Could you believe what you were seeing? I mean, this is, G where did you come from, right? I mean, this was just the reaction of the disciples. Jesus in the midst, could that really be you? John records Jesus' first words as being, peace be with you. And you don't ever have to really encourage someone to have peace if they already have it, which implies that they're freaking out by what they're seeing. I mean, when they realize Jesus is in their midst, they all dive for cover. Luke actually tells us that their initial reaction was one of both terror and fright, which makes Jesus' greeting for peace make sense. See, these men, again, according to Luke, thought that they were seeing a ghost or a spirit of Jesus, which is why Jesus responds to them. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Verse 20, that when Jesus said peace to them, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Again, I love the idea that Jesus' first word was peace. Peace. You know, think about it. You have these nine men. These nine men had a few days earlier totally abandoned Jesus in his time of need. Remember that? They go to arrest Jesus in the garden, and they all scatter. They all run for the hills. Give Peter a little credit. He pulls out a dagger. He's like, I'm going to defend Jesus just like I said I would. And being the brave man that Peter was, he decides that of all of the folks to go after, it wouldn't be any of the armed guards. We'll, we'll, we'll excuse them. Um, or those that actually... Peter attacks a slave boy. You know, big, bad Peter. And not only that, he's not a very good, he cuts off the kid's ear. Like, he can't even hit him in the head. He misses. And which Jesus has to, you know, pick up the ear, put it back on head, and move on to save the world. <laughs> Cleaning up Peter's messes in the process. So all of these men, all of these men have run for the hills. They all tapped out. They all ran turncoat. And not only that, but they have been given numerous reports that Jesus has risen from the dead. Again, the ladies. You got Peter, you got John, you got these two disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus that actually are sitting there and they see you know, Jesus' his hands and it all clicks. So they bailed on Jesus, these nine, and then they've spent all day doubting report after report after report. So when Jesus shows up, it's like, snap, wrong decision, you know? Is Jesus going to be upset? Like, I'm sure they could have, at, at a minimum, expected to be rebuked to an extent, called to account. 
But again, Jesus, he, he looks at them, and in his southern drawl, he says, Shalom, y'all. <laughs> Peace. You know, contrary to the position of the legalist, you know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead to condemn the world of sin. He rose because he came to save the world of sin. Jesus didn't conquer the grave, only to then in turn bury humanity under the weight of condemnation. That's not what Jesus was doing. He rose. Why? To provide mankind peace with his Creator. You know, you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And that is only found in Jesus. His first message is grace and peace. You know, aside from this, these men are concerned that maybe they're seeing a spirit, that Jesus is a ghost. But, but I love the fact that, again, he doesn't rebuke them, but he, he does some things to assure them. You know, he's going to meet them where they're at. John records how Jesus showed them his hands, you know, his side, where he had been run through with the spear. And Luke's account, and Luke was a doctor, so he provides a bit more detail. He says that Jesus, he said, behold my hands and feet, behold that it is I myself. I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then Luke adds that while they still did not believe. Jesus said, you have any food to eat? So they gave him broiled fish and some honeycomb. Jesus took it and ate it in their presence. I mean, Jesus does everything. Like, spirits don't eat, guys. You can touch me. You're a little freaked out by that? Okay, let me eat something. And to be fair, you always have to kind of check the story with the, the fact that these men and women are witnessing something that has never, ever happened and human history. It's not like there's a lot of precedent for this. I mean, name on one hand the number of people who've been dead for three days and rose to life on their own. There's only one. Like, only one up until that point, only one since. Like, a measure of skepticism initially is, is warranted. It's even understandable. And yet, Jesus has no problems meeting them and providing them ample evidence he didn't rebuke their skepticism. Instead, he just met them where they were at, and he revealed himself. Guys, it's really me. I know it's crazy, right? Even hard to believe. But seriously, here I am. I'm here. Touch me. Give me something to eat. I will prove it to you. Let's get back to the section that we read, because that kind of sets the scene. Because verse 24, then, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said, unless I see that his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of the nails, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. You know, I think it is, in a lot of ways, a tragic mischaracterization that this particular disciple has been nicknamed and known by theologians since about the 5th century. So it's been a while. He's known as what? Doubting Thomas. When you get to heaven, don't, don't be like, hey, you're doubting Thomas, right? I think he'll punch you in the nose. <laughs> like, it's not really an accurate presentation of this man. And, and not only that, but it's not even a fair reading of the text. I don't see any doubt within Thomas. 
You know, in John chapter 11, verse 16, we're told that as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, there were a lot of people warning, like, Jesus, you don't need to do, don't do this. There's a warrant out for your arrest. You've made some serious enemies. Uh, Passover will give them time and opportunity. Uh, don't go. Don't go. Even the disciples are like, this is a bad move. And yet Jesus was determined to go. And as they're making their way, and kind of like, the disciples meeting about this proposition, we read that Thomas, again, who was called the twin, said to the disciples, so when Jesus is like, we're going, Thomas's conclusion, he's like, let us go, that we may die with him. That's pretty honorable, isn't it? I mean, Thomas was like, all right, Jesus, if you want to go, I think you're going to die. But if, you're, if, if that's in the, then we'll just go with you. We'll suffer the same fate. We got your back. I'm your man. You know, we have repeated this, this phrase that Thomas was called the twin. It's an interesting phrase. I don't know if you know, in your Bible, there's this capital twin. Uh, most biblical scholars believe that he's referred to as the twin because of his uncanny, like, the similarities in the way that he looked to Jesus. That he looked like he was kind of like Jesus' twin. Which then becomes interesting because if you're going to Jerusalem and you're, you're fearing assassination attempts or, you know, or, or someone getting arrested, Thomas, like not only is like, we'll go and die, but he's like, I'm going to probably be the one to die first because they're going to mistake me for you. I mean, Thomas has a nobility to him. He's willing to go and die. He's at a greater risk. You know, Thomas is not a doubter. And, and he doesn't seem to be one of these people that's shifty in his convictions. Now, for some unspecified reason, we're not told, Thomas inadvertently finds himself being the lone disciple who's absent for this incredible supernatural appearance of Jesus. Like, we don't know why he left. We don't know how long he was gone. We don't know what he's doing. It's been a long day. My guess is he was making a Taco Bell run. But he gets back to the room. Couldn't have been long. And what does he find? He finds all of the other disciples are overwhelmed and they're ecstatic. They're pumped up as to what they had just seen. Thomas, we saw Jesus, man. He was here. And I'm like we didn't even think about it. He was like, peace, guys. It's all right. And we were like, I think you're a spirit or a ghost. But he's like, no, 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 no. You can touch me. I'm kind of hungry. Can I eat something? Honeycomb sounds pretty good. Got any milk? You know, I mean, I mean and, and so... Thomas walks in, everyone's pumped up. That stinks. Like, think about that for a minute. Have you ever been the one person who missed the moment or the joke that everyone is talking about? Like, you walk into the room after the joke landed, and everyone's laughing, having a good time, and they try to, they try to tell you, but it just doesn't work, it doesn't fit. Or like a bunch of your friends go camping and they have all these inside stories and they're talking and you're the one guy out that's kind of like, I missed it. I missed it. Like Thomas is that guy. He's missed the moment. They all saw the resurrected Jesus. He didn't. And they're not going to shut up about it. In fact, in the Greek, this, the, the tense in the statement that the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord, it's active, it's continual. It wasn't like, Hey, Thomas, you missed it. It's like they, they're going on and on and on and on and on about it. Like they're not going to shut up. Thomas has missed it. Bro, you should have been there. Guys, I was getting dinner. 
You know Thomas is frustrated. When he finally says, he, he says, unless I see, I will not believe. There's some frustration to that. Again, there are those who are kind of critical of Thomas's outburst here. But I mean, really, like what's he supposed to do? Like is Thomas supposed to base his entire belief in Jesus' resurrection on the experience he didn't have for himself? I mean, how would you feel about Thomas just be like, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, Jesus. Just, but if he went with the flow, didn't want to be the odd guy out. No, Thomas takes a stand. Like, I don't believe he's doubting the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And I don't even think he's voicing a skepticism that the disciples had a real world moment. But what Thomas is saying is he's making a declaration that his faith in Jesus and Jesus' resurrection necessitated more than the experience of his friends or other people. You see, Thomas is articulating a desire to see Jesus for himself. I think that's to be commended. Thomas is adamant that his faith would not be based on the experiences of others, even trusted friends. Thomas had to have a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus for himself. He knew it was important. Like, I hope you know this morning that your faith in Jesus cannot be based upon someone else's encounter or relationship with Jesus. Like, that's not how it works. And, and sadly, in the Bible Belt culture of the American South, this point is lost on many. Like, you know, the faith of your parents cannot be passed along to you. Like, you're not born into the faith. And faith is not hereditary. Christian faith isn't even transferable through marriage. While it's true Mowgli was raised by a family of wolves, he remained a human being. Beyond this, you need to know that attending church no more makes you a Christian than going to the gym once a week, once a week means you're automatically skinny. That's not how it works. You see, cultural Christianity, it's not Christianity at all. You know, in, in our world, in the climate in which we are, you have enemies of America, Islamists, fanatics, radicals, and they will equate the red, white, and blue to being Christian. And yet being a patriotic American, a gun-toting, Fox News-watching GOPer, doesn't automatically garner your passage through the pearly gates of heaven. It doesn't work that way. And Thomas knew this. Thomas rightly understood that a genuine faith was necessary. If he was going to forsake all, go all in, follow Jesus no matter what came, he knew he had a, a genuine faith built on a personal encounter. And he wasn't going to settle on this. He's adamant, you get his passion, unless I encounter Jesus for myself. How can I believe? Verse 26, let's kind of read a little bit more of the story. And after eight days, so, so this would be the next Sunday, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were again inside, 
Thomas was with them. And you can imagine, it has been a long week for Thomas. His boys have gone on and on and on about the experience he didn't have. And it's been a week. Is Jesus going to come back? Is Jesus ever going to appear to me? You know, Thomas is struggling by this point. And yet Jesus came, we read, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst, and he says, peace to you. So he repeats the exact same thing that happened a week earlier. But then Jesus turns to Thomas, and he says to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be, and this is Jesus' instruction to Thomas, do not be unbelieving or faithless, but believing. And that word believing is persuaded. So don't be faithless. Be persuaded, Thomas. And so Thomas replies, he says, my Lord, my Kyrios, my God, my, the, my Theos, you're my Christ, you're my God. And so Jesus said, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, which was probably a reference to John, who had believed just from the evidence of the empty tomb. And Thomas knew correctly that his faith, his faith needed a personal encounter with Jesus as its foundation. And most notably, again, Jesus was willing to oblige, wasn't he? Not only does he appear to Thomas along with the others again, but Jesus repeats Thomas's words right back to him, doesn't he? This is how Jesus is like, Thomas, you know, a week ago, you said you needed to feel and touch. You needed a personal encounter to believe. I heard you. Here I am. Is this enough to convince you? Are you persuaded now? You know, for Thomas, the appearance of the risen Jesus, the invitation to reach and look, it was more than enough. You know, one of the interesting components to this story is, you know, we have no record of Thomas actually touching Jesus' hands or his side. He says, I need to do this. And then when Jesus appeared, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I am persuaded. Like he didn't need to. His faith was secure. And so he declares, he doesn't touch, he just declares, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. Now it's personal. You're my God. You're my Lord. Presbyterian minister and author Frederick Bunchner, he once wrote, it hardly matters how the body of Jesus came to be missing because in the last analysis, what convinced the people he had risen from the dead was not the absence of his corpse, but his living presence. And so it has been ever since. You see, Thomas knew a personal encounter with Jesus was essential. And so the moment it happened, his life and the trajectory of his life would change forever. According to the testimony of several of the early church fathers in their writings, evidence suggests that Thomas, around the year 52 AD, which would have been during a this, the first wave of persecution recorded in Acts 8, that Thomas leaves Jerusalem and he heads east. He sails east beyond the reach of Rome. History says that Thomas would go to India with the gospel of Jesus. And he would serve in India for 20 years. History says that on July 3rd, 72 AD, Thomas would, would be martyred for his faith, being run through with a spear. Thomas's faith had been founded on the rock. The rock being a relationship, a personal relationship with the resurrected Jesus, and therefore his faith never wavered. 
And not only does Thomas leave behind a, a powerful legacy in his own day, but you know, in India today, there are still a group of believers, Christians, known as the St. Thomas Christians, and they trace their origins all the way back to this man, the work he began. Now this morning, if your friends have been telling you about their own personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and your response has been similar to that of Thomas, listen man, that's great for you, that you believe all this stuff, that, that you've made it like the center of your life, that's great. No, I'm not knocking you or criticizing you, that's cool for you. But you've got to understand, like, I have to encounter Jesus for myself if I'm going to believe the way that you do. And that hadn't happened yet. If that's you this morning, uh, there are a few things, a few nuggets, from Thomas's experience that I want you to consider before you leave this morning. First, this reaction to Christian friends that you need to have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus for yourself in order to believe, I want you to know that is 100% completely reasonable. In truth, I'd go far as to say that it's responsible and logical and even biblical. It's been said it's only appropriate that what a person believes in their heart must also make sense in their head. You know, atheist Richard Dawkins once said that faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, or perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. The irony to Dawkins' statement is he didn't get his definition of faith from the Bible. Because in Hebrews 11 verse 1, God defines faith as being, quote, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, the Holy Spirit will never demand from you a blind, or probably better defined, unfounded faith. Like, never once has Jesus commanded a person to do something and just believe. The Bible tells me so. According to the Bible itself, there are two foundational components necessary for genuine faith. Substance and evidence. See, the core issue when it comes to faith in Jesus is often not a lack of evidence or a substance to a belief. The issue, rather, often boils down to desire, if you're being fair and honest. More often than not, the skeptics, the skepticism of one's mind ends up being nothing more than the masking of the hardness of one's heart. We hide behind skeptical questions in the mind when it's really it's a heart thing i I know the implications i know what would happen and so i'm gonna hide the key with thomas is he wanted to believe like he knew what he needed but he wanted it do you the second point i want to make is that if you sincerely want to encounter the resurrected jesus for yourself In much the same way as Thomas, I want to encourage you to do something very practical. Hang around those friends who've already encountered him. Like, it's kind of the wisdom of Thomas' entire approach. Like, his entire radical experience, his moment came when? Well, John says, after eight days, Jesus' disciples were again inside. Thomas was with them. Like, think about that. Like, in spite of the fact that these guys can, like, refuse to shut up. 
about seeing the resurrected Jesus, going on and on and on and on, Thomas doesn't go anywhere. Eight days, he stayed, he hung. Like the scene opens up with Thomas hanging out with his believing friends on Sunday. And do you think that's an accident or even a coincidence? Like Thomas wisely decided to hang around the people who had what he wanted, a personal relationship with Jesus. I have found that one of the best places for a genuine seeker to encounter the risen Jesus for the first time is often at church with their believing friends on Sunday. And here's why this is the case. In Revelation chapter 1, John has this vision of Jesus presently. And what is he doing? We're told that he is in the midst of the church. He's in the midst of the church. Jesus this morning is with us spiritually. Now, if there was any question that Jesus was with these men, it was removed, right? Because he reappears and he repeats verbatim back to Thomas what Thomas had said a week earlier. How did you know I said that? Well, because I was still here. You couldn't see me, but I was here. I was with you. You see, if you want to encounter Jesus, you should go where Jesus is, where he hangs out. Again, the point's simple. It's only logical that if you want to encounter Jesus, you go where Jesus hangs out, and you hang out with those he hangs out with. Let me add a sub-point to this. If you're a believer ministering to a seeker, it is for this very reason you should never underestimate the power of bringing that person with you to church. It's a simple thing. And, and don't get me wrong, God's not restricted to working on one day. And he's not restricted to a church facility. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that bringing your friend with you to church on Sunday is a good place to start. Like Thomas was with believers on Sunday. And what happened? Jesus broke through the void and revealed himself to the one man in that room who needed it most. According to a study published by Barna Group, 50% of all decisions to come to Christ were driven by someone with a close personal relationship with the individual, a relative or a friend. It's likely your experience is, is the same. And yet the same study revealed that only 39% of Christians believe evangelism is their responsibility. It's a shame. In light of that, I just ask, who are you witnessing to right now? Who are you sharing your faith with? Anyone? How many people even at your place of work know that you're a Christian? When was the last time you invited someone to go to church with you? As the Great Commission was not a great suggestion. It's our calling. It's our purpose. It's why we're here. It's our mission. Finally, if you're here this morning, and if, like Thomas, you're sincere in your desire to encounter Jesus personally, you want it, you know something's missing, you know there's a void, I encourage you to just get ready. Because if you're genuine, that encounter's coming. It might be this morning, it might not be, but it is coming. And the reason I can say this with complete confidence is that, is that Jesus is, is terrible at hide-and-seek. Like, I mean, really, he's just a really bad hide-and-seek player. 
He's not good at it. You know, if you ever play hide-and-seek with a little one, and I'll do this with Mabel, my two-year-old. I'll be in the room, and she'll say, Daddy, close your eyes. So I'll sit there, and I'll close my eyes. And she'll run and hide. She's actually getting pretty good at where she's hiding. She'll get behind one of the curtains. So you can't see her. And then you know where she is because it's, it's moving, you know. And as you're walking around the room, are you over here? The whole time she's just giggling. <laughs> she's giggling. Daddy, like, she doesn't want to stay hidden for long, right? <laughs> like when you play hide-and-seek with little kids, who really finds who? The seeker or the person they're seeking? Sure, it might be your responsibility to seek them out, but because kids experience more joy when they're discovered, they'll do everything they can to be found. In fact, the only way a kid playing hide-and-seek isn't found is if you fail to seek after them, which can be a good strategy when you're watching the ball game. <laughs> you see, Thomas, Thomas was seeking after Jesus. He was seeking. He wanted something. He wanted an encounter with the resurrected Lord. He wanted it for himself. It's why he stayed connected with those who had already had the experience he desired. But what I find amazing about our story is that in the end, did, did Thomas find Jesus or was it Jesus who found Thomas? It was Jesus who appeared to him. Again, no one seeking Jesus genuinely has ever failed to find him because Jesus loves to be found. It's been observed that the issue with Jesus isn't that he was nowhere to be seen. It's that he was seen alive, he was seen dead, and then he was seen alive once more. As a fact of history, beginning with Mary Magdalene in the garden, progressing down through the centuries. An innumerable amount of people from all types of ethnicities and walks of life across the globe have claimed to have had a personal encounter with the resurrected Lord. It's why I can tell you He's alive. You can include me. You can include likely the majority in this room and that great cloud of witnesses. I can tell you Jesus rose from the dead because I've encountered him and that encounter changed my life forever. How do you argue with a person that says that? Like, really? That said, the profound nature of the resurrection, what makes the resurrection important, what makes it significant, it's not that it presents a new idea, which it does, or a philosophy or theology or a moral framework, a code to live by. Like the power of the resurrection what makes the resurrection of Jesus so important is that in it we find the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of a person who is alive and his name is Jesus. You see, the very public and very physical resurrection of Jesus revealed to the world the reality he was not dead any longer. The resurrection is the proof that he crossed the grand divide, that he successfully conquered sin, and then his return and presentation to humanity validates the important reality that our death is not the end of our existence. 
Not only that, there are a lot of you that have lost loved ones. The resurrection of Jesus says you will see them again one day. Apart from that, you have no hope. You have no guarantee. You have no surety. Jesus is the only one that was seen alive and then was seen dead and then was seen alive again. He's the only one that fits that criteria. He said, of everything that I came to do, of everything that I said, if you need proof that I am who I say I am, it's very simple. I'm going to place it all on one thing that's gnarly. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I will be dead for three days. I'm going to come back to life. If I don't do that, just go away. Everything I've done is discredited. I'm a, I'm a lunatic. But if I do that, I've gained credibility. You see, the only way that you can be sure that there is an afterlife is because Jesus came back alive after death. If you're skeptical of the resurrected Jesus, that's okay. I understand it. I, I respect it. The testimonies of your friends cannot replace a personal encounter with the Lord. It shouldn't. Thomas, he was in the same boat and he declared, unless I. And yet, please understand that making such a statement also rings forth an important question. Unless I, what? Thomas had a personal encounter with Jesus. It changed his life forever. Jesus appeared through the void. He invited him to embark on a crazy journey. But never forget, all of that began all of it was initiated because Thomas wanted to believe. Do you? And, and we know that Thomas wanted to believe because he hung around those who did. Are you? You know, in the end, while Thomas may have been seeking, it didn't take long for Jesus to reveal himself. In Luke 11, Jesus promised. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then Jesus says, for everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened.